Hello, this is a free call from an inmate from the main state prison, Warren. To accept this free call, press zero. To refuse this free call, hang up or press one. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. This is Our Prison's The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Bestman and Leo Hilton. Today, we're talking about justice and accountability with the Honorable Eric Maynard, Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court and Attorney Crystal Williams. I'm Catherine Bestman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. I'm Leo Hilton, and I come to this show not only as someone with lived experience in the criminal legal system, but also as a co-instructor with Catherine. For the past year and a half, we've worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? We concluded our last episode by asking whether our adversarial legal system, which determines winners and losers, Today, we'll start by talking about justice. We have a system characterized by plea deals, prosecutorial overcharging, racial disparities in arrest and sentencing, an extremely impoverished indigent legal defense system, and data that shows that those who end up in prison are disproportionately poor, traumatized, victimized themselves, dealing with substance use disorder and mental health challenges. Given this reality, how do you see us as achieving justice through our current criminal legal system? Eric, can we start with you? Sure. I don't think you can achieve justice through our current criminal legal justice system. Uh, When I was growing up, my parents were both studying to be psychologists. And the one thing that I learned from them was the definition of insanity. And that is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And our current legal system, based on an adversarial-based system, in which we incarcerate the greatest number of people in the world. Uh, We are number one in the world for incarceration, 698 per 100,000 by the last statistics I had. And we continue to incarcerate them. The recidivism rate is 76.9%. That tells us that putting them in prison is not working. It's a complete failure of the system. So the system has to change. We try to use a legal system to solve problems that are social, psychological, and legal in nature. Without a different approach, we won't be able to do it. Um, Some of the work we do at Penobscot uses a different approach, and I can talk about that at any point in time. Now is a perfect opportunity to talk about that. You are in very good company, and I feel in very good company, that you see how the current adversarial system is actively participating in the definition of insanity. So what is it that you do differently at the tribal court? At the tribal court, we when I when I first came to the tribal court, I did come from that highly adversarial system. I did primarily civil rights work in the federal courts, which was um, very complex and highly adversarial. And I came here, and the chief of the tribe, when they appointed me, said, "That's great. We've seen how the Anglo court system works. Three hundred fifty dollar fine next. Three hundred fifty dollar fine next. That doesn't work for us." I said, "Okay." He said, uh, we want a problem-solving court. And I looked at him and I said, okay, chief, uh, what's a problem-solving court? He cocked an eyebrow and said, figure out what the problem is and solve it. And so that really became the, the impetus 
for an approach that we use here, which brings together different disciplines. Um, we use what's called the braided services approach for, uh, in large part for our, our criminal justice system. We find that a substantial number of the crimes that we deal with here have either a substance abuse component or, or are substance abuse related. And we use a braided services approach, which brings together social services, behavioral health, housing, the Department of Education, uh, counselors, and case managers to really work on what are the underlying problems that are out there that need to be resolved. Our, our work functions on four foundational premises. The first is the criminal behavior is not the problem. The substance abuse underlying that criminal behavior is not the problem. The problem is unresolved trauma, personal, historical, or both. And we know that to be true. Um, SAMHSA has statistics that tell us 92% of all women say they have suffered significant trauma in their life. 87% of men have suffered significant trauma in their life, and they think men underreport. So until we start dealing with the trauma, we'll never deal with the real root causes of what leads to the behavioral issues. The second is you don't change behavior with negative reinforcement, only with positive reinforcement. B.F. Skinner taught us that, what, 1954? Um, and still we use prisons. The prisons are negative reinforcement. They don't work. The third is it's commitment, not compliance. If people want to change their behaviors, um, they have to be committed to it. If they're simply complying, the behavior won't change because as soon as you have stop bringing an authority figure to watch them, they will not continue to be engaged in the behaviors. It has to be a cognitive approach. Um, it has to be something that they internalize as an internal locus of control rather than an external locus of control. And finally, we say alienation drives addiction, and it really is alienation drives the antisocial behavior. But when we operate on those four foundational premises, we find that the system actually can work together to problem solve and, and reach some of the root causes of the issues that individuals are facing. Yes, thank you, Eric. That's wonderful. That's super helpful. Crystal, you come from a different side of the law. I know that you don't practice criminal law. I'm wondering what your view is of this question. Yeah, I, I definitely ended up at the same point, which is it's uh, the current system is is not just it's and it's not possible to bring justice in the absolute sense to the um, the current system. You know, when I think about it, um, first want to make sure that we're defining our terms because justice means different things to different people. And so when I was thinking about this question, again, from the absolute sense, thinking about justice as fairness, the, from the foundation of our history, the legal system has never been fair. When we think about uh, some of the seminal uh, court cases, when I think about the dispossession of indigenous lands and the court cases around that, if you read through them, the court's logic is horrendous, right? And, and there is actually an acknowledgement that, oh, the, the tribal nations were occupants, but, you know, we as conquerors gave ourselves the right to claim this land. And now that we claim this land, the court's not going to overturn it. Right. So so there is embedded in our legal system uh, deep, deep uh, unfairness and disparities. And it just continued throughout time through chattel slavery and the subsequent black codes. Right. So it, it not is only in the highest court of the land. It permeates every area and aspect of the legal system. So uh, so, no, I don't I don't think that it's possible to achieve 
pure justice in the purest sense through our legal system. That quickly leads me to a point, a, a really dark place, which I don't like to be in. So when I think about a just system, I think in a very, a more localized process-based way. And that I think is applicable to the transactional side, which is where I mostly operate, as well as the, uh, the criminal side. And I had, um, so I went to Maine Law and my professor, my both criminal law and civic um, civil law professor was uh, Professor Czar, who is just uh, a brilliant person. And he said something that really stuck with me. Um, he mentioned, he said that bias enters the system wherever there is discretion. So when I think about justice, particularly from a process perspective, you know, I really like to ask myself the question and wrestle with the question of, you know, how do we today create a, create a process or a series of interconnected processes to ensure that treatment in the system is fair, regardless of race or economic status? So that really does go towards um, prosecutorial decisions, right? There's an immense amount of discretion that prosecutors have, whether to prosecute, whether to require bail, how much bail to, to require. So one of the questions I have and one of the steps that I think we can take towards making a more just system is really look at prosecutorial oversight. Like, do we have a scorecard? Do we have a way of looking at prosecutorial conduct throughout the process to begin to be more aware of how um, bias is being, how power is being used? and where bias shows up. Crystal, can I follow up with you? Do we have any prosecutorial oversight in Maine? Not to my knowledge. That would be a great thing to look at. I am, yeah, so. <laughs> okay, just checking. We'll stop there. <laughs> uh, one, more, one more quick follow-up question. I think, I think the notion of fairness is a really important one, especially in relation to the point that you made about um, laws are social constructs, and they reflect the biases that 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 we that we enshrine in law. So, what does fairness look like to you? How do you evaluate fairness and what is fair? Wow, that is that is a really great great question. I I don't know that I have a great answer to it because the more I pull the threads of our history and become more educated myself, the more I realize how deeply unfairness um, and disparity is embedded in our system. It is not a perfect solution by any means, but I really do say, okay, given where we are today, one, are we criminalizing behavior that is more prevalent in one socioeconomic class or racial or ethnic group than others? Um, that's why I really love the work that the ACLU is doing around criminal charges in general, like looking at that. Um, because it's the modern day version of black codes, right? So uh, uh, so that is one aspect, I think, of fairness. The other piece is really, this goes again back to prosecutorial oversight. And I do think that is something that we should look at more specifically and seriously, really looking at the sentences that are levied, right? On the back end, when someone is found guilty, um, and are we taking a, I was reading uh, this morning on the Brennan uh, Center of, so of Justice, you know, are we really taking a scalpel approach to making sure that the correction 
fits both the severity of the crime as well as the circumstances of the individual. And so, Eric, that's why I really loved a lot of the comments that you were making about, well, let's actually figure out the problem because the behavior that we're seeing is, is not the root. So I think that even within the, the construct of the current system, there are ways to inject some of the wisdom of indigenous thinking and indigenous approach to, to justice into the Western U.S. system. Thank you, Crystal. Our next question addresses accountability and punishment. In my experience, the current legal system places a person who causes harm in a position of defending themselves against the system and the title defendant. And what this does is that instead of alleviating the suffering of victim survivors as it purports to do, it actually dissuades harm doers from taking full responsibility for what they have done. So I have to ask, does our criminal legal system offer avenues for true accountability? What is lost for victim survivors when the person who hurt them is not held accountable to them but is instead removed from the ability to redress or repair that harm. Our system restricts them from fulfilling the obligation they have created by causing that, that harm in the first place. How is that landing with you? Are there actual avenues of accountability? Let's start with Eric. That's a really interesting perspective because I, I think what I hear you saying, Leo, is the idea that because of the way the system is structured, the adversarial nature of the system, that the defendants are counseled by by their attorneys and required really to take the position of not taking accountability in the court system, of saying, no, these are the reasons that I'm not responsible for this, rather than saying, okay, there was a harm that occurred and how do we best resolve the, the hurt that came from that harm? So I think your perspective is exactly correct, that the, the current system, the, the nature of the adversarial system, by its very nature, um, perpetuates the idea of defendants not taking response. Certainly, I would counsel my defendant, if we're going to go to trial, don't you say anything that, that could possibly indicate that you did anything wrong in this case? And what we know is that if someone steps up and takes responsibility and says, I, I did something here and, and I feel terrible about it, that that can go um, uh, part of the way towards the healing process for individual, individuals who have been victimized. And so I, I think that that is a really interesting issue you raise. I think that is in the, we, we see that in, in the movement towards restorative justice. Uh, but I, when I think about restorative justice, I think it on a, a even a bigger scale than than the individual and the defendant, but on the restoration of the individual uh, who committed the offense it, back into the community. And how does that occur? That's great. Um, thank you. And so restorative justice on a bigger scale, the concept of community. So as someone who has caused harm in my community, not just individuals, but the harm radiates out from the interpersonal harm that was caused. So with what you do differently at the tribal court, how does that really support through accountability? What we talk about in the tribal court, um, we focus primarily on trying to get to the, the root causes of the behavior here and and that often means that there's a lot of trauma counseling involved for offenders as they're going through the program here 
the offenders that we find as they work through the program, they find by their actions, the things that they do to give back to the community once they start the program, really change the perception of the community of the offender and actually make the community feel safer. They no longer look at that individual as somebody who is, what we often see is someone says, oh, you stay away from that individual. They've done bad things. And as the individual is able to transform themselves and change behaviors, the community suddenly feels safer and say, oh, well, John's not such a bad guy after all. Look at him. I stopped and talked to him on the street today. That promotes that sense of safety in the community, which which is taken away when there is an offense committed in the community. Thank you, Eric. That's um, such a helpful way to understand the true community-based nature of restorative justice. Crystal, coming to you, in, in your view, how does our legal system enable and or disable accountability for harms done in your experience, in your practice, and in your perspective? I also found the, the question super interesting. I think on the transactional side, there are more uh, opportunities to address harms done and support accountability, in part because we have alternative dispute resolution models, right? And within the main state court system, at least, if on the transactional side, if you have a, a civil case that you take to court, there is a built-in mechanism that you first, before you go before a judge, try alternative dispute resolution mechanism. So while there, it is still adversarial, and um, my experience going through that process with clients is it is um, there's still not a willingness to, um, to admit wrongdoing and accept accountability. It is a softer version of the court process, which does in in the best case scenario, allow for some type of restoration of the relationship, particularly if both parties want it. But I really loved Eric's comments about restorative justice because that's where my mind went immediately. And I, I actually had this fascinating thought because we see restorative justice models most frequently in juvenile justice. Um, but we don't see them in the adult system, which there is an underlying assumption there that the youth are capable of rehabilitation and reintegration within the community, but that adults are not, right? Um, and so I, I find that, yeah, this conversation has been super enlightening because I think that uh, what Eric was describing in the uh, the tribal court system says that no, we don't, we believe that our adults can be reintegrated into the community in a healthy, helpful way. And it would be lovely to see that um, that assumption and, and that approach embedded more in the traditional legal system. Thank you. That's such a great answer. It, it's like in, in uh, the court systems that are not tribal court systems, the assumption that at 18, something in your brain locks down, you know, yeah. and hormonally and bodily and physiologically, like you're done, you know, you're, you're the person you're going to be the rest of your life. And there's not that um, actual recognition of people's ability to, to grow, to continue to change, to be, you know, what we sometimes call lifelong learners or to develop greater emotional literacy or um to uh to, to to benefit from other other ways of engaging with the community and resources available uh, i'd like to ask you and and i think we've got time also to go back to eric to talk a little bit about the relationship between restorative justice and transformative justice so crystal you said restoring what was harmed using the system the court system to restore the damage that was done 
And some of the critiques of restorative justice is why would you want to restore back to a system that allowed a person to cause harm in the first place, or that didn't effectively address the roots of what caused somebody to, to, to be in a position where they could cause harm. And so do you see any ability in our system to actually move towards using the law and using courts to transform systems that would actually enable people who have caused harm to come out healed, to come out unbroken, to address the challenges that they had been facing in their lives that, that perhaps motivated them or, or uh, that, that were factors in the harms that they had caused. Crystal, to you first, and then Eric, we'll circle back to you. Yeah, so I, the short answer is no. I, and I, I hate to be kind of a negative person. I think that, hmm, how do I say this? I would be concerned. I am concerned that we are putting uh, too much weight. We're putting the weight of society on the legal system um, with that approach. And I don't know that that is fully appropriate. And I have deep doubts and concerns about a system that is inherently built on precedent and that precedent is grounded in a racialized past. I have deep concerns about that system being able, being the mechanism to transform our side, our society. Um, you know, in the words of, I believe it was Audre Lorde, the master's tools can't destroy the master's house. So that's, you know, um, so I think there's some inherent shortcomings with that approach, unfortunately. Thank you, Crystal. I would never think of you as negative. I think of you as realistic. <laughs> Eric, where, where are you on that question? I'm the hopeless romantic, although I, I tend to say, and I, I found your question really interesting. And first off, I want to I want to thank Leo and others at the MSP because I, I did some work there and we had a conversation one time and they awakened in me the recognition that I had never really experienced. We sat down and we were talking about issues of trauma and one of the things they said to me was do you recognize that most of us when we first got into msp were knuckleheads we we hadn't matured we didn't know what we were doing but after we've been here a while and had some chance to 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 think and to learn we have to live with the idea of what we've done and how we've harmed others and we don't receive any trauma counseling we don't receive any support and the idea that of, of sitting there and and having to deal and cope with that level of of trauma is is overwhelming. Um, I can't imagine how they deal with it on a day to day basis. But I do believe that the system can change. It can't exist in in the current adversarial model. Current adversarial model is based on an idea. I mean. From And it, it's interesting when you talk about built-in bias, because when you look at the original history of the adversarial model, it, it literally came out of the idea of trial by combat. And the strong God would promote the strong right arm of the, uh, the champions. But even then, the bias was built in. If you were a lord or a knight, you were given an edged weapon, uh, armor, and um, you had a there was a 60 by 60 foot uh, battlefield. If you were not, 
if you were a commoner, you were given a blunt weapon. You had either a stick or what they call the war hammer, a leather shield, and leather armor. So the system was against the individuals from the very beginning. It had built-in bias from the very beginning. And when you take that further and you look at what we do today, the system still built that same way. If you're wealthy, you have access to high-priced attorneys. They have computers and rules of evidence and rules of procedure, all of which are designed to keep evidence out and to, and to limit the ability to make an informed decision-making. If we're talking about truly transformative justice, then we have to involve a system which says the problems that we face are not only legal in nature, they are sociological, they are psychological, and the sol solution to that problem has to involve all disciplines. Can they come together and work in an approach that says, okay, and, and it has to be an individualized approach. You cannot, I, I don't believe you can do it on a... Um, on a mass basis. But if you do an individualized approach and work with this is the individual's traumas, this is their challenges, these are the services they need, and work through that, I think you can make a difference with regards to uh, justice can be part of the difference that is made with, for people going forward. And economically, I'm going to tell you, it makes a whole lot more sense. In my wellness court, we can put people through uh, the wellness court, which lasts for 12 to 18 months for $6,000 a year. That's what the cost is for a year in the program. The cheapest you can put somebody in jail in the state of Maine is $38,000 a year, and I think it's up to $43,000 a year at MSP. So when you're starting to talk economics, the economics argue try and work with, and I know Justice Softly had talked about this at one point in time, about pushing um, the offenses back to the community level to have it addressed in the community where... Um, there can be that idea of how do we bring the services together to deal with this issue? Um, because trying to treat everyone in, in, in mass leads to en mass incarceration. Wow, uh, Eric, Crystal, thank you. Um, I do have to know that recent estimates are actually closer to 55,000 or 74,000. Both have been uh, cited recently about the current cost of incarceration, which is incredible. One person for one year, up to $74,000. Holy cow, Leo. Thank you for sharing that. So we just heard the incredible voices of Crystal Williams and Judge Eric Maynard addressing the themes of justice, fairness, accountability, trauma, and the need for healing and community-grounded efforts at reentry, repair, and reintegration. In short, our adversarial criminal legal system does not and cannot heal social problems. That's what we need community for. Crystal was spot on that we need to stop relying on the criminal legal system to solve all our social problems. That's why we need to invest in, in building strong communities that have the capacity and own the responsibility to address interpersonal harm in ways that hold people accountable to the people they harmed rather than hindering them in the ability to do so. As Eric just shared, bias was built into the legal system from the very beginning. Wealthy people have sharper weapons and stronger protection than those without financial means. Economic disparities perpetuate justice disparities. So community-based approaches must supplant adversarial systemic approaches. 
what we need to do is shift how we see and engage with harm away from the current emphasis on punishment and toward a holistic, equitable justice grounded in community that takes into account the full context in which harm occurred and that leads toward meaningful accountability and repair. That's how we find our way to healing and community safety. We'll continue this conversation next month as we explore the way our society treats crime and harm and how we seek or don't seek accountability for each. Well, next week, please join Marion Anderson and Peg Williams for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. In the meantime, check out the Alpha Legal Foundation's three-part workshop beginning in January called Legally Racist, How Laws and Legal Norms Perpetuate Systemic Racism and What It Would Take to Change. You can find information on the Alpha Legal Foundation website at alphalegalfoundation.com. With thanks to bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series and to Emma Reynolds, our sound engineer. 